This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. You're listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Kevin Young, poetry editor of the New Yorker magazine and director of the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture. On this program, we invite poets to select a poem from the New Yorker archive to read and discuss, along with a poem of their own that's appeared in the magazine. My guest today is Catherine Barnett, who's received such honors as a Whiting Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and for her second book, A Game of Boxes, the James Lachlan Award. Welcome, Catherine. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. The poem you've chosen to read for us is Maybe All This by Wisława Samborska. Can you tell us why this poem stood out to you when you were looking through the archives? Um, Samborska is a poet I've loved for her radical uncertainty and radical doubt, sort of with a profound comic intelligence and a philosophical intelligence. So this poem, you'll hear, has all these maybes, which is a form of of (laughs) radical doubt. Right, Um, right. And there, are, it is marked by question marks. Mm-hmm. You don't actually need to to have a question mark because the maybe is already introducing all the doubt. And I love being a poet because I can inhabit and enlarge questions of doubt and uncertainty and um, all that we don't know. I can pay attention to what we don't know. I used to be a journalist uh-huh. and was supposed to be an authority. <laughs> and I love... I love Zimborska because she is an authority of not knowing. She says, I don't know is the most important phrase we should cling to, really. I'm dying to hear. Let's hear the poem, shall we? Okay. Here's Catherine Barnett reading Maybe All This by Wisława Zimborska, translated by Claire Kavanaugh and Stanislaw Baransek. Maybe All This. Maybe All This is happening in some lab under one lamp by day and billions by night? Maybe we're experimental generations, poured from one vial to the next, shaken in test tubes, not scrutinized by eyes alone, each of us separately, plucked up by tweezers in the end. Or maybe it's more like this, no interference. The changes occur on their own, according to plan, The graph's needle slowly etches its predictable zigzags. Maybe thus far we aren't of much interest. The control monitors aren't usually plugged in. Only for wars, preferably large ones, for the odd ascent above our clump of earth, for major migrations from point A to point B. Maybe just the opposite. They've got a taste for trivia up there. Look, on the big screen, a little girl is sewing a button on her sleeve. The radar shrieks. The staff comes at a run. What a darling little being with its tiny heart beating inside it. 
How sweet its solemn threading of the needle. Someone cries, enraptured, Get the boss. Tell him he's got to see this for himself. That was Maybe All This by Wieslawa Simborska, translated by Claire Kavanaugh and Stanislaw Baranzak, which appeared in the December 14th, 1992 issue of the magazine. So let's talk about this for a minute. What a, what a poem you've picked for us. <laughs> um, I do love all the questions. And then there's this, is it a vision at the end? How do you think of this uh, little girl on the big screen there? Well, I love that moment when there's a turn, look, on the big screen, a little girl is sewing a button on her sleeve. And it's going from the sort of larger political collective questions to the very particular individual moment. Is the little girl, I mean, someone has said that it comes from a painting of Vermeer, the lace maker. That's, that girl in that painting is making lace. This girl is sewing a button. Regardless, the attention to the particular in the face of these huge um, problems of war or our tininess in the face of the huge universe. Of all this. Of all this. Um, I think the, the, the focus on the particular is moving. And also that she uses with its tiny heart beating inside it instead of her. I find mm-hmm. that that's very defamiliarizing. Mm-hmm. And the, the shift from the large to the particular is also defamiliarizing. And the humor at the end, many of her poems rely on humor to uh, make their powerful indictments. Right. But it's not a ha-ha humor, is it? It's, it's kind of a the humor of the everyday, I think, in one way, it, the vernacular of get the boss, which, of course, is translated so wonderfully. But also uh, there's a kind of vision that, for me, happens and also a kind of a vision of mending, you know, and this mending that the mm-hmm. darling little being is doing is also a kind of mending that the poem is trying to do. It's trying to sort of mend this clinical place that might be our place. I think um, that's beautiful. Well, I mean, she wrote it so, uh, I think, for us to see it in some way. I think also Zimborska is a poet of astonishment. She has a poem called Astonishment. I think that poem has 17 questions in it. <laughs> I, um, and get the boss, tell him he's got to see this for himself. So just what you're saying, paying attention to the ordinary. And I, mm-hmm. I love what you said. I hadn't thought about that. Um, the, the act of repair. Which is, you know, so different. There's the needle of the threading of the needle, and then this needle early on, the graph's needle slowly etches. It's predictable zigzags. They're not just zigzags, which could be somewhat, I don't know, random or interesting. Instead, they're predictable. And I think that uh, idea of the unpredictability of people, of little ones especially, and and of beings uh, in general, I think is really interesting at the end. Well, I read Zimborska earlier on, around 2000, but I was really deeply introduced by Edward Hirsch, who's a poet who's appeared in many of these pages, and he and I appeared together recently, and he's a wonderful poet and has... The first time Zimborska showed up in The New Yorker was a poem he wrote in homage to her called 4 a.m. after Wieslawa Zimborska. So I really wanted to do a shout-out to his championing of her work and then his making 
use beautifully, as he does, of so many poets as models. That's a fascinating thing. Do you think that Zimborska shouts back to someone in this poem? Or, I mean, she's such an original that, you know, we're tempted to say not. But I wonder if this poem, you know, echoes for us. Uh, and I want to hear sort of how it echoes in your work in a moment. But I was just thinking about that. That is such a good question. I mean, she's often referencing other artists, mm-hmm. but I don't know if there is a specific um, influence that's coming through here. Sure. Well, what about the Nobel? How did that sort of change her being received here? Obviously, that's, uh, you know, sad to say for me, that's when I first heard of this fine poet. Right. So she got the Nobel in 1996, and she called it a disaster <laughs> because she's a very, not exactly reclusive, but very private person. Sure. And she said it, I think it took her a number of years to get back to work. Um, and so that at that moment, um, I guess the book that brought her here is View with a Grain of Sand, those first hundred poems that these two translators, Claire Kavanaugh and Stanisla Baranchak, brought to us at, at that time. And it's it's was very, very well received. I was interested to bring her up in this podcast because I was teaching her this summer in in Italy with this room full of young poets, and they were lit up by the work. They had mm-hmm. never heard of her, and they were really lit up. So just to make sure that the younger generation sure. keeps their, their eye on, on what she did. Do you ever translate? Have you worked in that mode? Um, I did. Sometimes when I'm teaching abroad, I can't write very well, so mm. I do what I call sort of speed translations, poor translations, <laughs> fast, to um, just get inside another language. Wow. And sometimes I take l- words in another language I absolutely do not understand and throw them into my own work based on sound. Right, sure. And then translate, and that can make an interesting, um, unexpected mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think translation is so important and yet not always done. You know, we should translate more, and, and we don't always read in translation. Uh, I, I think the magazine has done a great job of of representing sort of the world of poetry, which is, I think, uh, what our readers and listeners uh, are interested in. But I, I wonder about that a lot because it's such an important art, and I love what you're saying about how it inf- affects not just you know your reading but your own writing, yeah. uh, and that's really important. So this was the first poem that you, the New Yorker, published of hers. These are the main translators, but other poems were translated by other translators. So I had the pleasure of looking at how it appeared here right. and then comparing it. But what would you say the difference is? It's a tonal difference. For mm-hmm. example, there's a poem that the New Yorker published in 1996 called Some Like Poetry. And the last of the three stanzas is poetry. But what sort of thing is poetry? More than one shaky answer has been given to this question. But I do not know and do not know and clutch on to it as to a saving banister. So that's the way it was published here. In a, in, um, I actually think by Claire Kavanaugh, it was, it was like a redemptive, it wasn't the word banister, a redemptive something else. I could look it up. Sure. No. Um, but even that, saving and redemptive. I mean, it's an art, right, not a science. You know, I think of this a lot with Dante, who is here uh, almost a millennium away. But, you know, not only do the translations tell us about Dante, they tell us about 
what we need in the moment of translation. There's a wonderful um, poem by Carolyn Bergvall called Via 47 Variations. And she takes the 47 translations. There's, there are more than that. Sure. 47 translations of the first three lines of uh. the Inferno. And she reads them in alphabetical order. And then she just says the translator and the year. And it's a be- you can listen to it online. Oh, it's a nice. beautiful, and it makes that point so perfectly. Right, right. You know? Well, I'm partial to Heaney's opening stanza, but um, having heard him read it, it just was incredible. Uh, one last question about this poem here, maybe all this. There's this word in the second to last stanza, trivia. What do you make of that word? You know, she, she says maybe just the opposite. They've got a taste for trivia up there after this war, you know, the serious. What do you think that word conveys? It, mind you, translated, but how, how do you think that works in this poem? I think that's an excellent question because that word does what she does so often, which is it slips in irony, you know, mm. and a, a, a comic skepticism and a deep tenderness too because trivia, she's saying it's not trivia, you know, when when the camera comes in close and we see, mm-hmm. even just by the act of attention, paying attention to the girl paying attention is already an act of, of tender humanity. And um, so I think the word trivia, it's just a tonal uh, success for the contradictions it holds together. You know, it's it's giving us the word and throwing it away. At the same time, I think. Yeah, do, do you no, think that's that? great. No, you've put it beautifully. Now, in the June 25th, 2018 issue, The New Yorker published your poem, Sun in August, which you'll read for us in a moment. Is there anything you'd like to say first, anything that might be useful for our listeners and readers to know? What I became interested as the poem took shape is something I see in Szymborska's work and I see in, in Ed Hirsch's work also sometimes, which is where the self is made separate from the self or there's an alienation or there's a doubling or there's a, a kind of radical separation between one self and another self. And um, I think poets, I don't know because I am a poet, I don't know about other people, but we go through the world like that a lot, like living fully and with too many nerve endings. And at the same time, surviving it, I think, by stepping out at a, at a slight distance. And um, Jean Borschka has been helpful to me uh, to avoid sentimentality by, you know, in that same way, right. sort of stepping out. Well, that's amazing, stepping out. Well said. This is Catherine Burnett reading Sun in August. Sun in August. Dignity, I said to myself, as he carried his last things into the dorm. It was not a long goodbye, nothing sad in it. All I had to do was turn and head up the hill. All I had to do was balance on two feet that seemed to belong to a marionette who had no idea what came next or who governed the strings. There's no emergency, I told her. Just get back to your car. That's it. That's all that's required. I didn't mind accompanying her. I myself had nowhere to go. She drove east, then farther east, under a river, through a tunnel, until she found herself back at home, with a purpose. 
and the purpose was to recognize the green awning, to find a key in a pocket, to fit that key in the lock, take off her shoes, drop them on the floor with others left there like old coins from a place she must have visited. Worth something, but what? There were no clues in the medicine cabinet, none in the cupboard, none in the freezer where she found old licorice and bit of honey shoved next to a Ziploc of bluish breast milk, all of it frozen solid over 19 years into some work of art, a sculpture, an archaic something of something. She looked at my hands reaching into the freezer, or I looked at hers. They were strong, worn, spackled with age as they removed the milk ice stashed like weed far in the back. Do they even make this stuff anymore? What's it good for? What was it ever good for? Repurposed, she thought. Isn't that the word the kids keep saying these days? Hey, sweetie, she called to the unoccupied room. Hey, love. It was so hot the air from the freezer turned to steam, and she took the ice into her own hands, held it, held it gently against the back of my warm animal neck until something began to melt and I was alone. That was Sun in August by Catherine Barnett. I'm Richard Lawson. I'm Chris Murphy. And I'm Hilary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast, a weekly television podcast that obsesses over all things TV. Chris, Hillary, and I are at your service to recap and analyze the best that's out there and what you should be watching. Plus, we're talking to the stars and showrunners about how exactly it all got made. New episodes of Still Watching drop weekly wherever you listen to podcasts. What a wonderful poem. I love that moment because I don't think people often talk. It's hard to talk about that moment. You know, it's um, hard to film the feeling of you know, departure, but also letting go. I mean, that's what I come through to me and having done versions of that. Um, I think it's really moving. But also I love this other self, as you said, the the double, um, the sort of split self. I didn't mind accompanying her. I myself had nowhere to go, which is a great way. I myself has a great tone to it, but also it's, you know, the self talking to the self. You said that came about in the writing, or did it come about in the experience, or, or which came first? Um, it came about in the writing because I probably started in the first person, then to avoid sentimentality, threw it into the third person, which is already just an interesting strategy for any poem. And then neither one was satisfying. Right. And um, I think the the defamiliarized moment that this is trying to capture was best handled by the the gift of the the split self that <laughs> that I think does help us make sense of things that are you know when you're kind of overcome mm-hmm. both by thinking and feeling sure you know yeah so it it it, it went through many drafts it went through uh, many journeys <laughs> <laughs> well um, the son in the poem who's only really mentioned in the beginning 
is another kind of split self or, or it almost causes the split. You feel the sun is like this absence, but then there's this wonderful image of the breast milk like weed far in the back. Um, and I wondered about that uh, just haunting but also somewhat funny image in, in your rendering of it. Um, I wondered both about the humor and then also about that sort of image and, you know, how the, I mean, can you get more, uh, thinking about this thing that would have sustained the being to borrow Simborska's word years ago, but isn't anymore. Um, you know, and it kind of comes to sustain the she or the I in the poem. How did you think about that image, which I think is just, you know, striking? I think it again. It's a question of the power of the particulars, mm-hmm. and whether the particulars are narratively true or they're emotionally true. You can take your pick on this one, but the power of the of the thing to carry the emotion, and I believe just going back to Zimborska, I mean, she's a master of, of that, and you know the pleasure of saying a word like bitter honey or stash like weed or citing the Rilke poem, you know, an archaic something of something, which is, a, again, a nod to the archaic torso of Apollo that is just m- gives a joy and uses the comedy of it, the absurdity of it, to counter sentimentality. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a, real, uh, there's a real mix of recognition in the poem and then of foreignness, I was thinking, and, and of strangeness, let's call it. Um, and I was thinking about your describing using foreign words uh, that you might not even know the meaning of in your drafts. Um, and there seems to be this kind of love of that foreignness or a, a embrace of it. And in the poem, the speaker literally puts it on their warm animal neck. Um, that's really, I think, a compelling image as well, this not just simply recognizing this thing, which I think a lesser poem would have stayed with the image, but there's this interaction, there's this reaching out, there's this need to touch, uh, which feels also very true and earned and emotionally true and narratively true, whichever, take your pick. Well, that's, thank you. That's very beautiful. And what I am interested in is uh, if you can imagine that situation, then what else could you imagine after that? Yeah. um, and I think Zimborska is great at that. I think I think Zimborska weirdly is like an improvisational expert, you know, because in improv you say, if this strange thing is true, then what else might be true? Right. So if, if someone's standing there at the freezer, what else could happen? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to let the mind move forward, move into the yes mm-hmm. of possibility and strangeness. You know, and ac- it's not accident, but there is a quality what you're what you're mentioning. I think of of absurd accident almost. That then, how can you make use of it as a as a poet? Sure. Yeah, a question about uh, sort of the ending. We had when I first saw this lovely poem, we talked about the ending, and we talked about sort of other possibilities of the ending. And this is sort of a newer ending. Can you tell us what happened there for you? Um, yes. It would be a, a, a an example of many revisions, and this one, it had ended, you know, with the speaker calling into the empty room. Right. And to me, the humor of the word repurposed, which would be like Zimborska's trivia, 
you know, it's a word that is is trying to hold two things together. Sure, sure. And then I think that what this revision allowed and invited was a further defamiliarizing of those two selves and then a unifying of them in the end so that the I was determined not to end on pathos. I don't think that uh, that person, the speaker who's alone, is is pathetic. I think the aloneness is a is a pulling together of the split self into a whole. Mm. Is how I experience. That's how I, what I think about that. There was a journey to get through, the sort of difficulty of it, of and the self split in order to survive it really, and then comes back together. In that moment, well, it's alone but not lonely. It's yeah. it's one, you know. Uh, it's all one instead of just alone. That's wonderful. I just think the warm animal neck is there always in the poem. There's a kind of animal quality to it, or uh, instinctive quality, let's call it, where the the speaker drove, then went back at home with a purpose, and the the repurposed purpose thing is really funny. Um, and the purpose was to recognize the green awning. I mean, this is, you know, she in, in the poem is just going from thing to thing at first, uh, sort of at a loss. Yeah. Um, but I do think the finding in the poem isn't just, of course, of what's in the fridge. It's this finding, as you're saying, of, of the eye again. Exactly. Yeah. I think the questions, again, would be um, the, the the book that this is, part of human hours has four sections that are called accursed questions and they're they're talking and asking questions of questions and that brings me back to Zimborska who for whom questions was you know essential and um well can you bring it back to you for a moment and tell us a tad more about the book which is coming out uh in September human hours can you tell us just you know what are the are the sections thematic or they just range in different modes or how do you see them it's anchored by these four sort of lyric essays or or fragmented thinking about questions and it moves the speaker of of the poems is moving between um watching a a father uh lose his cognitive abilities and sort of depart and then also watching a a child in a very happy way depart so she's navigating that at the same moment that the world is in a kind of upheaval and she's also a very baffled. She's just utterly baffled. And there's a fight between sort of logos and comedy that, you know, you, you, you rely, you cling to logos. Oh, that'll get me through. Think harder. And then you cling to comedy and then you cling to logos and comedy. And it, I think it shifts back and forth with those other concerns about what's happening in the world and what's happening in her own particular world. Well, I've had a chance to read uh, through the book. It's wonderful. And uh, I know readers will flock to it for some of the very reasons you mentioned and some of the things that I think are present in this poem. I mean, this poem, where does it fall in the book? Is it beginning, middle, end? I think it's in the third. So the the four parts, it starts with poems and then there are these four parts. And I think it's in the third part of the of the you know standalone poems does he have uh does son return to us or do we have to wait and see is this can you give away the end or um i mean in the book <laughs> in the book yeah i think after that there's a um a poem where 
it's not chronological in, in the narrative sure. sense, but the way the, the the speaker and the son go to a baseball game and he loves Josh Beckett and she loves Samuel Beckett <laughs> and they are kind of hashing it out. And um, there's a uh, moment in that poem that reminds uh, – anyway, so I think – I mean he comes so back he there. loves a ball player. She loves uh, an existentialist <laughs> yeah. who refused the Nobel Prize. Yep. And somewhere they meet. Yeah, they well, they're just sitting there watching the game, and they, you know, she's got her Beckett. They've got their Beckett. <laughs> we all have our Becketts. Well, that was that's wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us today, Catherine. Thank you so much. Sun in August by Catherine Barnett, as well as Wieslawa Simborska's poem "Maybe All This," can be found on NewYorker.com. Wieslawa Simborska's most recent book in English is "Map." Collected and Last Poems, translated by Claire Cavanaugh and Stanislaw Baranchak, and edited by Claire Cavanaugh. Catherine Barnett's new book is Human Hours, out in September. Thanks again. You may subscribe to this podcast, the Fiction Podcast, the Writer's Voice Podcast, and the Politics and More Podcast by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. You can hear more poetry read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker app, available from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Corner by Christian Scott Atunde Ajua, courtesy of Stretch Music and Rope Dope. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff of newyorker.com with help from Hannah Eisenman. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on the New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.